Hey, Cozy Robots. Hey. I'm Mike McCarr. <laughs> I'm Grace Vaughn. And uh, you're watching the Cozy Robot Show. Hypothetically, there are literally zero viewers the first time ever in the history of the program, <laughs> as, as I suspected would happen. Uh, so if you're listening after the fact or you missed the live stream because you went to YouTube where we always go live... We're trying something new, which is going all in on Twitch to su try to support some other of our programs. Uh, so if you want to join us for the live show, try to join us on Twitch. If nobody does, we'll switch back to YouTube. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I suspect, you know, this, we'll I didn't listen want to say anything, but I was, I was very, very sure this would be the result. <laughs> Not a live it's show. Cozy. It's cozy. It is very it's just, cozy. It's just me and Grace. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, so if you're wondering where we are, you're watching this later on YouTube when we're posting the recording, and uh, or you're doing what most people do, which is listen to the program as a podcast. We're in the middle of Super Science Summer, where we are doing shows every other week, trying to keep them chill and laid back and curiosity-focused, because uh, it's been a tough year. And so we wanted to let people enjoy their summers as much as possible. So while we're not afraid to talk about difficult things, we've chosen for a little while to just talk about fun things. Uh, which brings us to this week's program. We're going to be talking about survival. And we were looking for, like, kind of silly survival questions, of which we got some. And then, you know, kind of hypothetical survival questions. And we got a lot of, like, real survival questions like a lot of truly real um trauma informed uh trauma questions and so uh grace did something really wonderful uh grace put together a crisis resources document so if you're in crisis or or just need someone to talk to and you're having a hard time you can go to the show notes right here of the live stream or the podcast or on youtube wherever you have to be watching and we'll have a link to a Google Doc with crisis resources if uh, right now you feel like your actual survival is in question. Those resources are there, and those resources are available. Of course, we always think that uh, therapy and other mental health experts are an excellent resource for those people who have access to them. But we also understand that a lot of people don't have access to therapy, uh, which is one of the reasons we put together a crisis document. So, welcome. Finally, we do have some folks joining us on Twitch. Welcome, everybody. As if Hello. Magically. Um, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, more Cozy Robots will make the switch, or else it'll be back to YouTube with us. Okay. Indeed. Um, that's is that, that's all the intro, right? Is anything else crazy? You. It was amazing. It was. I didn't perfect. even look at the, the outline. Intro. I just started talking. That was great. I mean, I think I, I think that um, when. I, I just want to commend everyone who sent in their questions that uh, we won't be covering today, but that uh, we have the crisis resource doc for because obviously sending in those questions takes a whole lot of courage. And thank you so much. You matter. You're important and you're not alone. Um, and as Mike said at the top of this stream, Super Science Summer is um, going to focus more on like what Mike was saying, the hypotheticals or more of the very science-driven questions. Uh, mm. But again, to reiterate exactly what Mike said, there is a link right now you can go to that has crisis resources available, uh, links to those and, uh, and a Google Doc. So uh, thank you so much for sending in your questions. And Mike, I guess that brings us to uh, our first super science summer uh, slash survival edition question. Rad. All right, here we go. Laura E. Hurst on Instagram asks, how to survive performance anxiety slash pressure? Hmm. Learn to love yourself. Woohoo. I mean, that's really it. Like, I have found... In my life and in research I've done about our species, most issues around perfectionism or performance anxiety uh, have to do with insecurities and fears of rejection. And we are social mammals, and so our brains are constantly concerned with what other people think about us. We are obsessed with how other people 
view us and feel toward us because for a social species, rejection from a, a, a social system altogether equals death, right? Humans aren't very viable on our own in the wilderness um, unless we're extremely trained. And even then, over a lifetime, we're not viable. So uh, it makes sense that we have a lot of concerns around how people perceive us and what we do and how we perform, whether that's in relationships or in our work or in creative things we produce, things like art. Uh, we get a lot of anxiety about how we perform or appear. And uh, that is our brain's attempt to protect us because every time we've performed in the past and been critiqued or ignored, uh, our nervous system's noticed and went, oh, wow, that wasn't good, right? So it can be as simple as like, even, you know, you're a little kid and you draw a picture and you show it and you're really proud and uh, someone's like, that doesn't look like a giraffe at all. Oh, no. <sighs> That'll really like <laughs> stick rough. with your brain, your nervous system. But mm -hmm. even when you're a small child, a lack of enthusiasm. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Like mm. our nervous systems are so sensitive to how people view us kind of learn to critique ourselves in advance. So the next time we draw a picture, we're like, is this better than the last picture? Is oh, this worth showing to someone? And that builds up over time, ultimately into something like a performance anxiety. So how do we get around that? How do we survive that? Well, we learn to just love ourselves and not be so obsessed with what other people think. Um, I, and I actually feel like I'm speaking with some personal experiential authority here. You know, I do public work. And for a long time, that's like how I made my whole living. And um, I realized that was really bad for me. And don't get me wrong. I'm like good at public performance. I was good enough at it to like sell tickets often enough to make a living. Um, but I realized my need to please other people to perform well enough to meet other people's expectations was really bad for me in terms of my own mental health. And uh, the Cozy Robot show we're making right now, I'm very proud of it because it's a show I enjoy and I like making. And it is more niche than things I've made in the past. It's slower paced. It's more emotionally focused. Uh, it's more communally oriented than anything I've done before. And I love it. I'm not making this program for anyone. My participation is for me. I like talking to grace i like exploring curiosity i like being emotionally aware and we're just making something that we enjoy and other people are welcome to participate if they'd like uh but chasing that performance anxiety by trying to get better and better and better i think inevitably leads toward a crash and what we have to learn to do instead is to be satisfied with our own abilities and cultivate them out of a sense of joy and satisfaction and not a desire to impress other people. I, the, so everything you said just brought up a lot of thoughts for me. The first one being that I'm kind of blown away that I haven't thought about this before. I guess I intuitively know this by just existing as a human being that has experienced many different social situations. But when you said after you receive um, feedback that isn't uh, at, at it, feedback that at worst is shaming or frustration or something negative and at best is kind of like not very enthusiastic, like, oh, cool, honey, I don't really have time to look at this picture right now. Mommy's doing whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you worked really hard on it or something as a kid or whatever. What's interesting to me is that you you're trying to protect yourself. And so thus forms the, the critic, the self Definitely. that like inner voice. Mm -hmm. It's a I, major theme in my second book. Like a yeah. third of the book is about that. Yeah. It's so, it's heartbreaking. And also it, I mean, is there like a world in which having an inner critic is a good thing? Of course, I don't hate my critic. My critic helps me make my work better. Mm -hmm. But it's the amount of voice I give the critic and from where. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm creating something, I don't allow the critic in the room. The creative voice is too 
delicate, too fragile. And you'll right. you know, when I do creative meetings with other people at Quantum Spin Studios, I'm pretty intentional about okay, if we're if we're concepting, if we're coming up with something, mm-hmm. it's yes and we're doing improv comedy. There is no that right. won't work or I don't like it or whatever at first because mm-hmm. the creative voice is so fragile. That's kind of I think comes from our truest self, the 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 inner child. Then you, the, the 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 critic is great to invite after you've made something, a, a first version of it, and you need to start refining it and making it better. Come on in, critic. What can we do? But as soon as the critic starts to get into a voice of shame, right? You know, I confront my own inner critic and say, whoa, 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 that's not true. I am talented. I am good at things. I am doing my best. People do love me. And guess what? If I make a bad book or an unexceptional podcast, people will still like me. In fact, people will still love me. Mm-hmm. My worth as a person isn't attached to this project. So, critic, you're welcome to tell me how to make it better. But you're not welcome to tell me, like, I don't matter or I'm unloved right. if I do a bad job. And that's right. that's inside my own inner monologue. But I also kind of reflect that um, – I get harsh criticism frequently on social media and, uh, you know, I'll eat my critique where it's helpful and useful and then the rest we just kind of send into the void with good intent. I'm a, you mm-hmm. know, I hit the mute button like I'm handing out candy. Right, social media. right. There's just there's not no... enough hours in the day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I loved that answer. Thank you for indulging the rest of the thread, Mike. Um, at Robin Marie Music on Instagram asks, how would you survive a car sinking underwater? Yeah, that's a really scary thing to think about. Yes, action um, movie stuff. It's an action movie kind of scene. Um, I would say, first of all, it is, that is relatively uncommon that cars fall into water. So, you know, to kind of like, unless someone's like, oh my God, I don't even want to think about that. Listen, it's pretty rare. It's not like mm-hmm. one of the more common things you'll face in a motor vehicle. And when it happens, um, there are strategies that increase dramatically your survival chances. Uh, like as soon as you hit the water, it depends on how far you fall. That's how long it takes to hit the water. But as soon as the car kind of hits the water and settles, right, the first thing you want to do uh Unbuckle your seatbelt. Actually, let's talk about before that. Before you even unbuckle your seatbelt, if you're the driver, kind of as the car is falling toward water, even if it's a short distance, you want to hold your grip on the steering wheel. And if you can remember to, press your head against the headrest. Minimize your chance of injury that way. If you're a passenger, bracing yourself can actually increase your chance of injury. Best not to raise your hands. Don't lean forward. That can increase your injury. Best thing to do. Hands kind of close to your torso, and again, head against the headrest. Minimize the chance of a whipping motion. Uh, then, as soon as the car is stabilized in the water, everybody's seatbelts off. Start with your own. Always start with your own seatbelt. And then once seatbelts are off, as fast as possible, get the window, at least a window, maybe all windows down. And you might think, what? That'll make water come in the car faster. It will, but the (laughs) pressure of water outside a car means if you don't lower the windows, you can't get out because you're Mm. no one. The strongest human being in the world isn't strong enough to push the weight of water, the pressure of water in a closed vehicle. The doors will, you will not be able to open them. So Mm. your goal is to get the windows down. That will create an inrush of water. You want to stay calm, take a deep breath. Take deep breaths as long as you can, and when the water gets to the point you can't, you want to hold your breath. This won't take long because once the the car is typically going to fall nose down, once the front windows are underwater, that water's not going to be rushing in anymore. And as soon as you can, you just grab the uh, door frame around the windows and you pull yourself out of the vehicle because you're not strapped in, and uh, you don't have to wait for the car to like hit the bottom and all the air to come out before you could open the doors because you opened the windows as soon as you could. And most cars, like they don't sink especially fast. It takes time for water to displace a lot of the volume. Uh, So you typically, with electric or cranked windows, will have time to get those down before they're submerged. And then you just kind of casually leave the vehicle. Um, If you 
didn't get the windows down in time, don't despair. Do not try to break car windows with your hands or feet. It won't work. You need a pointed object. So uh, it I have in my car a um, uh, glass breaker. It's a, it's a little handheld thing with a point that you can use to break glass. Uh, failing that, uh, you can pull the headrest from a seat and use the sharp end of the headrest to break window mm. glass. Uh, but you need a, a metal small point to break a car window. Better strategy, of course, is to get those windows down before that. So I I'm can't believe to... I've studied in such detail. Um, <laughs> no, you knew every single step. <laughs> getting out of a car. Uh, Mythbusters did an episode on it once that fascinated me. Mm. Uh, I'd been thinking about it before that, and then I went in and I looked at some additional tips from safety experts based on that, and I just happened to remember for the show. So. I love that. I also, that is one of those... Um, that is a f- not a not a very like often fear that I have, but I've seen it enough in movies to know that I would very much like that to never happen to me. So mm. it's nice to know that there are options if it ever does, and it's also nice to know that it's not prefer, like a common thing. I would prefer a car falling into water to like a T-bone in an intersection with a lot of speed or an offset. Uh, crash where the two corners of a vehicle cross lanes. Yeah. This is a much more survivable severe accident than most wow. severe accidents. Um, so, because the crumple zone and the surface of the water both act as crumple zones and absorb some of the physical energy, which makes it safe for the passengers. Then the only scary thing is the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you get those windows down, the water is not as big a deal. Uh, oh, one thing, if you have small children in the car, I used to do this all the time. Uh, just rehearse, uh, and don't say like, oh my gosh, I've got, just rehearse taking a car seat straps out quickly. There's no telling when you need to quickly remove a child from a car seat. Mm-hmm. So I used to just kind of rehearse uh, pretty frequently, rapidly unbuckling a car seat. I actually did that with baby dolls before my children were born. Oh, and I was always trying good. to make sure I could get uh, a car seat loose. Uh, in less than two seconds so amazing a good skill to have for sure good skill to have there are some there are some questions coming in live right now one of them i was wondering mike if you have the answer for mikey underscore clem chowda asks this is it easier to survive in extreme cold or extreme heat no (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mike, uh, for sending in your question. <laughs> um, extreme heat to a point. Uh, anything short of a wet bulb temperature of 95 degrees, heat is more survivable. Because really? your goal is, is to get in the shade and be still. And you can survive a long time. Um, once you get past the 95 degree wet bulb temperature, uh, heat's gonna you're going to have a heat stroke in like an hour, even in the shade. So now that's still that's rare today. We're understanding that will not be so rare in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ext- what's extreme heat is a changing criterion. Extreme cold makes me think of, you know, uh, significantly below zero with a wind chill. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and that that without the right gear just isn't a a sustainably survival situation both are both are very bad uh in both (laughs) cases shelter helps you in both cases access to liquid water helps you um you know you want to get out of the wind if you're cold as much as you can even in in like a lean-to context um and uh don't eat snow if it's really cold you know um Mm -hmm. but if you don't have any kind of uh, I keep emergency blankets in my car, and I live in Southern California. But like yeah. we're driving or whatever, uh, you always want to have access to some materials. Uh, by the way, those emergency blankets help you when it's hot and when it's cold. They're quite quite remarkable mm. that way because uh, they can be used to deflect the sun's heat or absorb your own heat or or retain your own heat in a cold situation. Mm. Um. But basic survival materials will go a long way. I just keep a backpack in the back of the car with some food, some water, some survival tools, including like 
small tent and uh, emergency blankets. And I'm not like a prepper. I'm not like a survivor. <laughs> One of these people that's like, oh my gosh, civilization's going to fall. I'm like a reasonable precaution, kind of like FEMA would tell <laughs> right. you to have in the event mm -hmm. of an emergency. Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it snowed in Texas this winter, right? <laughs> oh like, God. you just want to be prepared for the weird world. weather. Yeah. And uh, and really, like, a backpack's worth of stuff can make a huge difference in extreme heat and extreme cold. But both, and, are, both are not good. And, like, I don't, I know nothing about the weather where you are, Mike. But isn't it true that even in like the desert, it gets freaking real cold at night? At night? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There you go, everyone. I had one fact. <laughs> Very hot I... places tend to turn cold at night. Um, deserts, especially so the, the the tropics and subtropics, not so much. But anywhere it's hot and dry tends to get cold at night. There you go. There you go, everybody. Is that because there's not a lot of like vegetation? It's just like the earth. It's just the earth reacting to the sun slash not the sun being there. Yeah, the atmosphere itself holds less heat when it's drier. Okay. So, you know, when I grew up in the rural south, um, that humid air. Moist <laughs> It air, holds a lot sure. of thermal energy. <laughs> yeah. um, and it also changes the way, how efficient air is at removing heat from your body. So, um, yeah. Uh, you're killing me, Lawrence, is a username. And also, this person with that username says, <laughs> don't know why I said it like that, but here we go. I grew up near Death Valley, and it was 115 in the day and 20 at night sometimes. We rarely saw sub 10 degrees, but the swings are bad. Yeah, right. Bonkers. Yeah, and 20 degrees is no joke if you're not prepared for it. At Zed Life on Instagram asks, how would it change someone's body to live underwater for months oh, with God, oxygen? Oh, God, you wouldn't live underwater for months with oxygen. Really? That's not physiologically possible. No, it's pressure. You'd hit oh. saturation. The danger is not like what would it do to your skin, how wrinkly or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's that the way your body absorbs chemicals changes when your atmosphere is pressurized. Your atmosphere has to be pressurized for you to breathe underwater. The same reason you can't open the car door uh, when you're underwater in a car is the same reason like you couldn't breathe in, even if you had if you had mm -hmm. a bottle of oxygen that was at or no this is here if you literally had a tube that went to the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's ever tried this. I've tried it. If you if you take like a water hose and get on the bottom of a swimming pool and try mm -hmm. to breathe through it, you literally can't. Right. Because the pressure of the water on your lungs is too great. So you have to pressurize oh. the air you're breathing in as well to push back against the water. When you pressurize atmosphere that way, it has really negative impacts on the body's tissues. Uh, so the longer you are pressurized and the more pressure there is, the faster this happens. But uh, it basically causes your body to absorb inert um, gases like nitrogen. And this ends up mm. being bad for your tissues. It can cause tissue death. Uh, it can cause uh, cause your bones to become brittle and start to break down and break. Oh. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, so even <laughs> when people have tried long-term experiments, not even diving, but just being in a pressure vessel for extended mm. amounts of time, like an underwater research facility or whatever, a lot of mitigations are required for that to be work and to be safe. And I just don't see how those mitigations would be possible uh, if you were just breathing oxygen and free diving. Not to mention, how are you going to eat uh, for 30 right. days? How are you going to drink water? Um, yeah. You know, so now you're getting to like a pressure suit. Now are you really diving? So uh, I would say... Don't dive for 30 days. I just you heard it days. here, folks. That's the <laughs> official because you're about stance on living Even underwater. Even if you made it, <laughs> coming back out would be extremely hard on your body. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, 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 the bends and other depressurization conditions are, are real and significant and require professional intervention. 
to cope with and lots of equipment. And lots of equipment. Well, that's kind of what I'm picking up from the answers to all these questions. Sometimes you need a, a little something. Sometimes you need like a a, a, a glass breaking mechanism in your car or safety blankets, that kind of yeah. thing. Just enough, not doomsday prepping, but just enough just in case uh, worst case scenario rolls around. Mm-hmm. Here is another worst case scenario. And this is one that actually the person who sent in the question, I've cut some of the question out because it was technically a spoiler to a TV show. So this is the main question. <laughs> but they were like a spoiler alert, but yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, they said at Q Claude on Twitter asks, okay, for hydration, how effective is drinking your own urine? Would drinking your own pee really help you survive longer in the desert, specifically? This is not as cut and dry as you might think. I've heard actual survival experts say that you absolutely should start drinking your urine as quickly as possible. Wow. Um, I, I, that does not seem to be true. <laughs> um, here's why. It is true that urine is about 95% water. It's mostly water. It is also true that when fresh, it contains very little bacteria, right? It's not sterile, but um, (laughs) it certainly probably has less bacteria than any pool or puddle of water you would find somewhere. Hmm. So um, in terms of purely getting water into your body, urine does that. Here's the problem. The 5% of urine that's not water is stuff your body worked really hard to get rid of because it's dangerous and toxic. Now, the word toxins sends me to the moon because kind of, you know, woo-woo health has turned everything into a mm-hmm. toxin and you're detoxifying. Detox. And this, none of this means Please. anything. It's all yeah. baloney. Right. But in terms of an actual toxic materials, What's in urine that's not water is all toxic, <laughs> like proper toxic. So um, if you want to detoxify your body, actually a really great activity, peeing. It's probably the most effective thing you can do to get rid of toxins. So now you're drinking those toxins back. So you got some hydration, but now your kidneys, the stuff that they just spent hours and hours getting rid of, you just dumped in your digestive tract. So your digestive tract now has to deal with what it already processed plus what it's processing now, and this intensifies every time you drink your urine again. So basically, if you keep drinking your urine, yeah, you stave (laughs) off dehydration, but you bring on the symptoms of kidney failure. Oh, my God. So people who have survived by drinking their own urine. um, So if you're sure, like, you're going to be rescued and – three days and you literally don't have any other water i might consider it otherwise you can make yourself so sick drinking your own urine that if you're going to be unrescued for six days or six weeks even once you find fresh water those kidney failure symptoms can put you in a lot of danger so uh you know a good strategy being drinking your own urine is highly situational again it would be like I know there's no water, and I will die before I know it. Like, I know there's a helicopter coming in 38 hours or something. Like, something longer than I can conceivably survive without water, but short enough that I don't think the impacts of kidney failure are going to kill me before I can be rescued or onset. Uh, Yeah, so... You know, I, I think Bear Grylls literally was like, "Yeah, no, just start drinking your own water," and that's that's really bad advice. That doesn't line up with, mm-hmm. uh, I think, what medical experts or even most survival experts would say. You got to be in real dire straits. A very particular type of dire straits, not even <laughs> yeah, real dire like, straits. Like if you're in really dire straits, this actually could mode. make things worse. There's probably in most deserts better sources of water than urine including some species of cactus. Um, so better to study that than go like, oh, no worry, I just carry my own water supply in my bladder. Because you don't. Because you don't, everybody. Yeah. You don't. So don't start doing that. Um, 
Mike, we have reached the middle of the show. Thus, ads must be read. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. Goodbye. The Cozy Robot Show is made possible with the help of our wonderful sponsors. First one this week is BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You can learn all about BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash cozy robot. And uh, they're an absolutely wonderful online counseling service that helps people deal with the typical stressors that we face in life. Things like jobs, money difficulties, relationships, things like that. So you may or may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you have a total loss. But if your stress is high in your life, your temper is going to be shorter than usual. Uh, You might start to feel strain in your relationships and you could use somebody to talk to. So BetterHelp lets you connect with licensed counselors who specialize in mental health challenges. They offer customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can get started really quickly. You can usually talk to a therapist in under 48 hours. So unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'll be surprised what you might gain from it. So uh, you can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash cozy robot. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash cozy robot. Our second sponsor this week is our friends over at NordPass. Listen to me. You need a password manager. People are terrible. I mean terrible at coming up with passwords that are secure. If you come up with something you can remember, it's easy to crack. And if you come up with something you can't remember, well, then you can't remember it and you get locked out of your own account. So password managers solve that for you. They let your computer generate secure passwords and then your computer memorizes the password for you. I use password managers every day. It's how I secure my own online identity and online services. So with NordPass, you get one place to store all your passwords that is way more secure than a sticky note or Word document. You organize your logins and private notes in a secure encrypted password vault that you then access with a single secure master password. They'll also uh, check your password health. So as you load passwords into NordPass, the software will do a health check to see if your passwords are weak, older than 90 days, or even if they've been used by several accounts, which from a security perspective is a big no-no. One of my favorite things is their data breach scanner. So they're going to find out for you if your online account, your credit card information has been leaked as part of some other company's data breach, which lets you get ahead of the ball and take action to protect yourself. So we've got something wonderful for the so long summer sale, and that's getting 74% off NordPass by visiting nordpass.com slash cozy or just use offer code cozy. When you check out, and in addition to getting 70 74% off, wow, that's incredible, you'll also get four additional months absolutely free. Get started today by visiting nordpass.com slash cozy. If you're just joining us, you're watching The Cozy Robot Show, and on today's episode, we're talking about drinking your own urine. Mike, <laughs> Mike, when we left off, you said that it's actually super not immediately necessary to drink your urine unless you're in very specific circumstances. Yes. And you should probably know those circumstances before you go, uh, you know. Yeah, when in doing... doubt, don't drink your urine. <laughs> when in doubt, don't do it guys um but you mentioned that there was a possibility that and i i always say this person's uh last name wrong but bear is it bear grills bear grill that's how i've said it i don't know okay so i was thinking of it like a bear is preparing delicious steaks on a barbecue bear grills Okay, well, I like that. Let's go with that for now. And then any Bear Grill heads in the chat can uh, tell us the pronunciation specifics. Um, but at Hey Mark on Instagram asked you, Mike, 
Uh, hey, Mark said years ago, Mike said he was team survivor man more than team Bear Grylls. Why? Bear Grylls is a fantastic entertainer with some survival experience. Um, but Bear Grylls' show is uh, very typical reality TV, meaning there's not much real about it. I mean, I've seen shot breakdowns where they'll show Bear Grylls in some like seemingly extreme environment. Uh, and they'll kind of position these in the middle of the wilderness, and then someone will find that spot and pan away and see that he is like a hundred yards from an interstate, right? Like, um, and when yes. Bear Grylls does go into the wilderness, he goes with a large production team and a lot of assets, and he reenacts things you might do in a survival situation. Survivor Man goes out by himself in the wilderness and films it, and survives really difficult places on the earth uh, with limited provisions, all of which are accurately reflected in the production of the episode. So there's just a... The proof is in the doing. Survivor Man survives the things he says he survives, and I just think that makes his um, advice all the more credible. Um the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. So that's why I'm definitely team Survivor Man. Don't get me wrong. I've watched Bear Grylls before. Sure, I will again. But uh, if I'm flipping through channels and Survivor Man is on, that's a guaranteed stop for me. Survivor Man also, I remember watching Survivor Man, and I'm pretty sure that on at least one episode, like there's a mechanism within the format of the show where he has a walkie-talkie and he can call for help if he reaches a point where he's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. This is really bad. I'm in crisis and I need help. Does that ring a bell for you, Mike? That there I was don't like remember. An I would hope like, every show does that. Right. Um, I'm not actually interested in watching people in real mortal avoidable peril. Right. Um, if I go anywhere off the grid even slightly i take a satellite gps communicator i'll hit the mm -hmm. helicopter button if i need it if i fall off a trail in the mountains of los angeles uh i'm gonna hit the button and get rescued and there's no shame in that right uh and so i hope anyone who does these things has that kind of an out because human life is important yeah and, i uh, think he imperiling I, it's not worth our entertainment in my opinion right right otherwise it's very uh, dystopian Hunger Games esque. Yeah. yeah. All right. Here is another question, kind of, um, kind of uplifting, and you'll get the pun in a second. At Bradley underscore Richard on Instagram asks, "How does superhuman strength work for survival? I.e., a, a mom lifting a car off her child." Mm -hmm. uh, we think of ourselves as having five senses: um, touch taste, sight, smell, hearing. Uh, we have more senses than that. Um, we have uh, senses that let us feel states in our body. We have senses that like, I can close my eyes and uh, put my hands in front of my eyes, even though I can't see it, because I have a sense mm -hmm. that tells me where my body is in space, right? Mm -hmm. uh, those are real senses. And uh, those senses work together with our normal muscular performance to kind of cap the amount of flexing our muscles will do. It's not, you know, when you really work out, you work out enough to create small tears in your muscle tissue that healing is what causes muscles to grow. But it's actually possible for your muscles to exert enough energy to really tear themselves, to really damage your body. And so typically, mm. sensations of pain help limit uh, that kind of output. Now, sometimes we go beyond those thresholds as we interact with the environment. Now, those are sports injuries, right? Um, where we're, we're momentarily going beyond our performance or pushing our body beyond what it can structurally deal with, and, and we, we damage our body's tissues or systems as a result. Um, so when we're in a crisis situation and I, you know, a child being under a car 
around a parent is certainly going to activate our body's uh, crisis response systems. Our uh, bodies produce hormones, adrenaline being a principal one, that changes the relationship between our nervous system and our bodies. Hmm. And it basically says like, hey, the nervous system has decided breaking stuff is warranted. What stuff? Us. So um, our sensitivity to pain decreases um, and our cardiovascular system begins to operate at a level that's not sustainable to us and our level of fitness. The rate our heart is pumping blood, the, the rate of respiration, we begin to really deeply oxygenate our body's tissues. And for a bit, we are stronger. Mm-hmm. Now, this has limits, right? Um you know, a mom lifting a car off of a child isn't going to lift a car over their head and toss it <laughs> something far beyond mm-hmm. the abilities of any person. But maybe having the strength to, you know, lift one corner of the car in conjunction to a degree, you get a wheel off the ground, especially a back corner of the vehicle, things we've seen happen in media. Uh, that's where that's coming from. The body has decided to my long-term abilities as a person are less important than this immediate moment. Mm. And, um, and you get those moments. Those are, again, those are not sustainable levels of activity for us. If, if our bodies left that level of power available to all the time, we'd, we'd do something silly and <laughs> right. snap our elbow or something. Right. Um, but that, that's generally what's happening is the body survival systems. The things that would allow you to outrun a predator that's actually faster than you, um, that's worth risking some significant injury uh, to your ankles and knees. Uh, it's that same system. Interesting. That reminds body me of survival mechanisms. There's like, there are things that I I know I am just literally repeating exactly what you said, but there are things that our body does. uh, There are things that our body keeps us from doing because technically, yes, with the right adrenaline or whatever survival mechanisms that you're talking about, we could achieve those things, Mm -hmm. but it would hurt us. And I am fascinated by that. I think that it's so it feels obvious. Like, yeah, I can't do that because if I did, I would hurt myself. But the fact that the body and brain is developed in a way so that like, like I always heard that you could like technically bite through your finger or something. Like you could really, you oh, could yeah, sure. really you have adequate bite force. Right. And, but you're, but you don't, it, it feel not only does it feel like the very last thing you would ever try to do, but it's like something that your body keeps you from doing. Like <laughs> you would have so to be in quite a, right. seri- uh, a crisis to to ever come close to doing that. So it's just it's so interesting that there's there's things right. that you our can't bodies bite like through your finger know. and someone cut off their arm because it was trapped under a boulder. Right. Like, the body systems are dynamic, and yeah. those those pain thresholds and our response to them change given not our brain, but our brain-body systems assessment of our ability to survive a given moment. Yeah. Um, And it does make sense, too. Is this the same thing as, like, when you are in a – maybe a (laughs) – I'm going to give away how not athletic I am – in, like, a sports tournament of some kind – and you hurt yourself and you don't feel it until later because you you were winning. You were winning. It's like the adrenaline is like pumping through you. Is that the same kind of thing? Literally adrenaline. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Wow. The more you know. At Luke Z. Ward on Instagram asks, in a survival situation, which parts of our brains have changed how they function? Survival situation is a broad word. Um, that that phrase could encompass a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm in the wreckage of an airplane on top of a mountain and I've been there for three days, I'm in a survival situation. Mm-hmm. But that's different than when the plane was coming down, which is also a survival situation. And mm. those are really different physiological states. 
Uh, one, the plane's coming down. That's the activation of the fight or flight or freeze or faint systems in our body. Um, effectively, in those states, the older part of the brain and the body take over our actions. Uh, what we would call the brain stem or the reptile brain. Uh, and the limbic system are going to take over most of our actions and decision-making as we enter a state of panic, um, which is, you know, sometimes panic does things better than our cerebral brains. Like, you know, if you're going to leap out of the way of a swiping bear's paw, mm -hmm. your body is actually probably going to do a better job of that than your cognition. But what happens a lot of times is people's panic causes them to do things that increase their susceptibility to danger in a moment which is why you're typically encouraged to figure out how to stay cool. Staying cool and staying focused just means keep your thinking brain active, uh, which requires some rehearsal and kind of some prior preparation. Uh, that's different than being in a prolonged survival situation. Your body can't maintain fight or flight or freeze or faint for a long time, but you can get in a state of prolonged um stress um all a static load is the term for that and most of us have experience with it now thanks to COVID-19 hmm. we're very stressed for a long time that starts to affect the way our bodies operate we uh get more emotionally reactive we experience cognitive fatigue we become more likely to get sick because it impacts our immune systems and so being in a survival situation long term has a very different effect than the short-term um, fight or flight or freeze or faint system. But what both do is just kind of make it hard to have access to your cognitive and emotional resources, uh, which can be challenging uh, to your ability to survive. Is that prolonged state of survival mindset the same as being in shock? Or is being in shock something that wears off? sooner than like well there's psychological shock and physiological shock and those are two different um two different things if we mm -hmm. think like shell shock a trauma response a soldier on a battlefield who's not injured but is spaced out mm -hmm. this is the nervous system being overwhelmed by what's going on that condition will um typically uh, fade in the near term obviously can have significant long-term consequences and requires mental health care to treat as if it forms into PTSD. Um, shock, what we call shock, can also be that freeze reaction. Our survival system goes, oh, there's a scary thing. I don't know. Do I just freeze? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, that can look like shock. Shock is a physiological thing is what happens when our bodies support systems begin to have difficulty functioning and start to shut down. And that is a medically significant event that requires specific interventions to counter and is uh, life-threatening. Okay. All right. Good to know. It's, it's typically good, in my opinion, every person should at least read the basics of uh, emergency medicine and first aid, like understanding yeah. what to do. What do you look for in a person uh, who is in a crisis condition? Like you want to, the most important thing is airway checking for obstructions. Like is a person breathing? If someone talks, you know the airway is good at least for now, which means now we start to look for signs of bleeding. Bleeding is the second biggest danger behind lack of access to oxygen, uh, and then we would provide pressure or tourniquets as appropriate. After we've made sure that people aren't bleeding out, then we can check for signs of nerve and neurological damage, things like disorienting, disorientation, uh, confusion, lack of consciousness, uh, kind of feral behaviors that people can have if they're coming back from consciousness following a concussion. Mm -hmm. And all those things have are probably out of the scope of the time we have left in the show, uh, <laughs> but are things that are available that you, you can study typically for free online. I'm not saying you need to get like emergency medicine training, although that's certainly worthwhile. Um, uh, but at least being, having some awareness of that kind of triage order, uh, the basics of how to perform CPR, 
uh, the basics of clearing an airway, things like that, uh, you yeah. could save someone's life and, and not realize it. When or not I, realize that you would have the opportunity. But once you're in the situation, you can't go back and learn these things. Right, right. It's, yeah, you either know it or you don't. And in mm -hmm. the moment, you really wish that you knew it. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a teenager... Uh, uh, one let me say one other thing on that point. I hate to interrupt oh, you, but I don't want to forget. I have first aid kits, and I've studied this stuff, and I've read it, but I also keep in every first aid kit, or I might say a trauma kit because it's a little past first aid, I have a little card in those kits that reminds me the steps of things to check because I know I'm not an EMT, mm -hmm. and I might like blank out faced with somebody in a genuine medical emergency, and look, I've got a little checklist that will bring back those things I've already studied. So those kind of aids are really beneficial in survival situations. Sorry, Grace, please continue. No, uh, don't apologize. That, that goes right into what I was uh, about to say that uh, when I was a teenager, one of the things that they suggest babysitters to do is to become CPR certified through a uh, an accredited uh, place. I think the Red Cross is where I got uh, an online certification. And then you can go to um, you can go to centers. And you can practice on dummies and that kind of thing. So it's very, it's very available. Um, uh, I don't know how available now that I'm talking in COVID terms. I'm thinking about COVID. I don't know if they're having in-person trainings now. Um, I bet but they are for vaccinated people. There you go. If you're interested in uh, learning about CPR, then they have trainings all over the place. And it was really, it made me feel 10 times better babysitting, um, knowing that if anything, uh, if the worst happened, I would be prepared. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, ne never hurts to know those things. Uh, you never regret going through that kind of And training. we talk about like, you know, a lot of arcane, like, do you drink your own urine? Like what would you if a car was falling into water, but what to do when someone's choking or having a heart attack, those aren't rare things. So those are right. definitely survival skills worth practicing. At, I'm not good at these things on Instagram asks, I hiked the AT Appalachian Trail in 2017. Could you talk about the impact that has had on my body? Oh, gosh, there's so many variables. I know I overthink questions to death. Um, I'm, that's, I'm probably known for that, so I, I assume viewers and Listeners expect that. <laughs> um, but there's so many factors here in terms of how much weight did you carry? How many calories did you eat per day? What was the balance of nutrition that you ate? How much rest did you get? And how many miles did you do per day? Because if those variables were anywhere close to ideal, I would imagine you experienced a lot of body positives. You probably increased your amount of uh, muscle mass. You probably increased the amount of brown fat on your body. You probably increased uh, the amount of density in your bones. Uh, and those were good things. You may have also had some repetitive use injuries. So these net positives on your muscles and your skeleton um, and other body systems, your cardiovascular system may have been net negative on things like your ankles and your knees, for example, depending on how you moved, how much you moved, what your rest ratio was like, how much inflammation you had. So uh, I think the best way to know how your body was impacted by hiking the Appalachian Trail, although you did it way back in 2017, would have been a physical when you got back. Like look at your biomarkers. Uh, your vital stats, uh, your blood chemistry, uh, and any uh, a good assessment for how you're doing is pain. Pain tells mm -hmm. us a lot, you know. Um, when we got all vaccinated in my house and got super excited about being vaccinated, the family went to Disneyland after sitting inside for a year. Mm -hmm. And pain told us really quickly that we weren't physiologically conditioned for the amount of walking a theme park involves i had more knee and shin pain trying mm -hmm. to walk around disneyland after a pandemic than i had when i ran a marathon it wasn't close Ooh, but when yeah. i ran a marathon i had months and months and months of physical conditioning first and that pain was a diagnostic thing for me i did not try to push through 
severe knee and shin pain because I knew that would increase my chance of an injury. Instead, I took this as a note, not now, but later. Mm-hmm. I've got to start doing some basic physical conditioning now that it's safe for me to be out and about again. So I'd say, you know, a physical and pain would tell you more about how your body did on the AT than I could on a podcast. Our final question for this episode comes from at Kelsey Ann on Instagram. And Kelsey Ann asks, what is the biological origin of resilience and can it be cultivated? Hmm. Gosh, what a good question. Gets us so out of silly survival and into something wonderful. Uh, Biological resilience is healing. What is the origin of healing? Life itself. That is the dividing line between those things which are alive and those which are not is the complex, repeatable process of healing the reestablishment of our biological patterns. Now, in our brain-body systems, there's a couple kinds of resilience. We have the physical resilience of our bodies, how well our bodies recover from challenges and injury, and we have psychological resilience, how well our feelings recover from challenges. Both of these things can be cultivated. Both of these things can be improved. Number one, this is really important, you're already very resilient. Every person, every person watching, every person listening, you are already very resilient. What do I mean? If you break a bone, it'll heal. Barring very rare medical conditions, but even if you have a very rare medical condition that makes it difficult for your bones to heal, if you experience tissue or cell damage, that will heal. Your body has a remarkable capacity to repair itself. And that's the foundation for increasing your physical resilience is to slightly break your body all the time. (laughs) Now, I'm not a fan of fitness fads or diet fads. I think they are psychologically harmful. I think they contribute to suicidality, especially for women and for gay men. Um, And so I don't support those industries. But I do support taking care of of your body by regularly moving it in ways that feel comfortable, in ways that support your goals, and ideally ways that feel very slightly uncomfortable, but no more. I try to stretch a little more than I want to each day. I try to uh, reach down on the ground in a low squat or crouch and uh, move my hands around like I'm picking things up. I try to do the kind of movements that you can lose if you don't make them. Uh, you know, walking is very a good way to start building up resilience in uh, your brain and in your body. And I do see your brain. Believe it or not, you know, I'm experiencing some cognitive challenges related to my COVID infection. And my neurologist told me one of the most important things I could do to heal my brain was light physical exercise, which drove me crazy. I'd much rather do Sudoku or something where I can (laughs) sit still. But because our brain is part of our body, moving our bodies helps our brains. Oddly enough, body movement also helps our emotional resilience. It helps us process our feelings, especially feelings of anxiety. And gosh, don't we all have feelings of anxiety? But when we come to cultivate psychological resilience, facing and healing wounds in our life is important. Now, I don't mean we have to have some dramatic um, confrontation with self or come to some understanding of how we've been hurt in the past. I think research tells us some of those models are pretty outdated. But reprocessing our trauma, dealing with our difficult feelings, learning to accept our feelings, well, those things do increase our emotional resilience, and that's important today and will be more important as time goes on. Because no matter what kind of a life we faced in the past, you know, when I look at the IPCC report from this morning that shows that some of our most pessimistic views for how fast the climate was changing were too optimistic 
we are all going to need to cultivate resilience in our feelings, in our thoughts, and in our bodies in order to survive, to thrive, and to build a better world for ourselves and for our descendants in the years to come. So this notion of cultivating resilience in our brains and our bodies, I think, is the most timely and important survival question that could have been asked even in a podcast episode that was meant to be kind of silly. So thank you for that question. Thank you so much for sending us all your questions, everyone. We really appreciate it. Uh, and we covered so many different things. And I, I know I'll be uh, getting some survival gear. <laughs> <laughs> just a basic kit. If you need help, just Grace, let me know. Stuff. Yes, absolutely. I definitely will. But that brings us to the end of the episode. No more questions. Okay. Well, everybody, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. However you're doing those things, we sure appreciate that you're here. And I'd like to let you know that the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. And I'd like to thank that team, starting with each and every Cozy Robot that supports the program. Love seeing you on Discord. And uh, by the time this episode comes out, we will have had a game night last night. Don't forget, game night's still happening. It's just on Tuesdays instead of Mondays. It's every other week instead of every week. If you want to know more specifics, CozyRobots.com slash events will take you to the mm -hmm. event calendar. Uh, our show's executive producers are Tanner Hearn and Victory Palmazano. Producers, Grace Vaughn and Greg Nordine. Production support, Amy Hill. Community management, Grace Vaughn. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. I can't say that without smiling. Uh, designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors and Wardrobe. Stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg, although mm -hmm. she would not claim my shirt today. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, and we cannot wait to talk to you again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye, Cozy Robots. The Cozy Robot Show.